Welcome to a Too Much Effing Perspective rock and roll recreation, where we replay one of our effing favorite episodes from the past. I'm your host, Alan Keller. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman. Today, we're featuring our conversation with Rhett Miller from the old 97s. Yeah, Rhett really did us a solid when he appeared on our show. Yeah, actually two solids, Alan. Not only did he appear with us, but then he ran our episode on his own podcast, Wheels Off, which is especially fun because now Wheels Off and Too Much Effing Perspective are both part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. We're family. We're family. (laughs) But I do have to say one thing about our conversation with Rhett that caused a bit of controversy. One of his stories about Waylon Jennings. Hmm. Waylon told Rhett that back in 1959, he lost a coin flip with Buddy Holly over a seat on a small chartered plane out of Clear Lake, Iowa, that ended up crashing and taking the lives of not only Holly, but the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, who wrote La Bamba. Three of rock and roll's most important early contributors died that night on that one flight. Right. And singer-songwriter Don McLean called it the day the music died in his classic song, American Pie. That's true. Yeah, and anyway, some of our listeners later contacted us and shared that they thought Waylon's story might not be entirely accurate. I guess there are reports that Waylon, who was only 21 at the time and was a member of the band, gave up his seat to Big Bopper, who wasn't feeling well. And this infamous coin flip that Waylon talked about was actually between guitarist Tommy Alsup, who ended up living to be 85 years old, and Richie Valens, which Valens, quote-unquote, won. That's the very definition of a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, yeah. And it's a a bit of a dark story as we head into what is actually a really uh, happy, joyful episode with tons of great stories. And in fact, there is a story that Rhett tells about how he helped Waylon to correctly pronounce the word elixir. That's for mature audiences only. That's right. So stick around for this amazing story from our September 27th 2022 chat with Rhett Miller that is truly one of our best episodes ever. But first, a short break. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriel, Jimmy G. from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions and lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Welcome, Rhett. We're delighted that you're here with us on Too Much Effing Perspective. Let's start with this. Is it true that you've played, what was the number you said, Alan? Was it like 2,000 shows, 4,000 shows? Rhett said he's played like 150 shows a year. 
So 30 years at 150 gigs, because there are definitely years where we were at like 250, but then there were probably lean years. So a conservative estimate would be 150 gigs a year for 30 years. So 4,500 gigs, yeah, probably closer to 5,000 gigs as the old 97s. And then I'd do a lot of solo gigs. Yeah. So I'm going to just ask you the impossible question. Is there a single Spinal Tap moment gig that stands out in your mind? There was a, a television appearance that we did recently. Like it, you would think that the most Spinal Tap moments would have happened in our wilder, younger years. Right. But there was one, it was a Conan O'Brien appearance that we did for Graveyard Whistling. It's a song called Good With God. And Caitlin Rose flew in from Nashville to sing the Brandy Carlisle part. I was staying at my friend Tom's house, our old A&R guy from Electra, and the band was all staying at that hotel on uh, Ventura Boulevard that everybody stays at. Sportsman's Lodge. Sportsman's Lodge. All right. And so the band was staying there, and 8 a.m. I get a phone call. God, not even 8 a.m., like 6.30 a.m. I get a phone call from uh, our guitar player, Ken, and I guess during the night, our drummer, Philip, went out to the van to catch a little pre-bedtime buzz, and... um. Like, I guess it's still in our minds being these Texan kids from the 90s that, like, we will go to jail. And he's just, like, smoking a weed out in the van when you could just <laughs> fucking go to the police station and do it. <laughs> and so he gets out of the uh. van. God, I don't know if this is public consumption. Whatever. It's fine. His kids are in college now. And um, he goes out to the van and he blacks out like a low blood sugar thing. Oh, no. And, yeah, he falls forward and he hits his face on an embankment and passes out bleeding in the parking lot for like a half an hour gets up covered in blood goes into the sportsman's lodge lobby where the front desk attendant is like you are going to the hospital sir oh, no. so they call our tour manager and our guitar player and they all go down to the emergency room our drummer is in icu it's bad he cracked his skull he's fine now so we can all laugh about it but at the time it was wait a minute sorry i'm sorry skull, like skull fracture literally yeah, you, yeah. you're saying wow yeah boy. okay but so that morning I called Mark Stepro, this friend of mine who's a great drummer in LA. Stepro's like, I'm on my way to the studios right now. We all played together for the first time at 10 a.m. during soundcheck. At noon, the director came by and listened to us play it. And Mark killed it. And Caitlin Rose sounded great. The band was all freaked out because we were worried about Philip. But we make it through the director run through. And then as we finish, the guitar player, Ken, goes, I need to have a band meeting right now in the green room. Murray, the bass player, and me and Ken go into the green room, close the door, and he locks it, which is very weird. And then he turns around and he goes, guys, I'm freaking out. I'm tripping balls. I accidentally ate. <laughs> he goes, I was really tired, and I was packing up Philip's stuff to get out of the hotel room, and he had these espresso beans. And I was like, well, I'm hungry. They're chocolate. They're espresso. They'll wake me up. It'll be great. He's like, I ate three or four of them. <laughs> and Ken, our guitar player, is not a big stoner, and he's like... I don't know if I can do this, guys. I am starting to see colors and hear shapes. And we still had like three hours before the taping. So I sent him to our friend's house and I said, you're going to take a nap then you're going to take a shower and you're going to come back here with a full reset and you're going to do great. Everything's going to be fine. So Ken went back. He took a nap, took a shower, came back right before we went on. He walked in, just eyes like saucers. We did the song for the taping. It was great. And you can see it now, although I think the Conan people have taken down all the old archives. But you could see it on the tape. When Conan walks over, like he always does, he walks straight to the guitar player, always, because he's a guitar player. And he walks straight to Ken with his arm outstretched to say, great job, I love your guitar. 
and Ken turns away from Conan right as he gets to <laughs> Ken and he sticks his arms up in the air like Rocky at the end of the movie and he's like, yes, because he didn't screw it up. He made it through the whole song, even oh. though he was still tripping balls. But um, yeah, and we're old. I mean, this is a man who at that point was in his 50s. So yeah, it's a little That's sad. embarrassing. It's a- <laughs> Thank you for telling that story. <laughs> that is one of the best. Rhett Miller, come on down. What's your favorite scene in the movie, This is Spinal Tap? So I married a woman from Cleveland named Erica, who's so great and funny and nice, but also has really strong opinions and (laughs) has opinions about like what the band should do and how the band should dress. And she... (laughs) She's constantly coming in before like TV appearances or big shows and giving input about outfits, maybe. Maybe she's telling Murray to clip his nose hairs. There's just sometimes a line might get crossed, right? And so... um, Did she ever give you astrological sweatshirts to wear? (laughs) That's my point. They started calling her Janine in the band. And so um, I had to explain to her that that's not a negative thing. That's just a reference. (laughs) But so um, my favorite scene in Spinal Tap is in the lobby of the hotel and they run into the much more successful band that's playing the Enormo Dome. Duke fame. Duke fame. And they got to go sit over here and wait for the limousine. It's just there's something about being in a band that is built on envy and that feeling of competition. And sometimes it's really healthy and loving. And sometimes it's just poisonous. And so when you can uh, turn that into comedy like they do in that scene, then I think that's sweet and good. But God, I've felt that way so many times. Like, why do these no-talent assholes get to go play the Enormo Dome? You've had the opportunity to work with a number of your heroes, right? You've collaborated with Waylon Jennings, Roseanne Cash, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick made a cameo in one of your videos. Uh, You've worked with Peter Buck. Have you had anything that you would kind of characterize as a Spinal Tap moment working with any of those folks? Man, uh, let me just go big picture for a second. Spinal Tap as a cultural reference within my band and probably I think within most bands, especially of the old 97s vintage, it's not just one of the references. It is the reference to the point where I think it was like 96, we had to make a band rule barring Spinal Tap references because every moment of every day was a Spinal Tap reference. I am so glad you shared the story about the old 97s having a moratorium on Spinal Tap references. When I was tour managing Radiohead and they first came to the U.S., they had just flown in. We were on the bus driving to our first show up in Boston. I called the band and crew in for a a meeting in the front lounge. I said, look, I don't have a lot of rules, but I do have one. Do not quote Spinal Tap. We don't want our tour to turn into it. And they're (laughs) like, yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds like a good policy. (laughs) It's more surprising when it isn't a Spinal Tap moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, for instance, when Waylon Jennings winds up being like this really sweet, down-to-earth dad who's super generous and wants to tell stories. He told the story of uh, putting Buddy Holly on an airplane 
the airplane on Buddy Holly's final trip. And they had flipped a coin to see who would get to ride on the airplane versus the bus. And Buddy Holly won, quote unquote, and got to mm. ride on the airplane. And Waylon, as a joke, the last thing he ever said to him was, I hope your old damn old plane crashes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I know he told that story a million times because I'd, I'd heard it, you know, in a bunch of places. But when he told us that story during the lunch break, he still got tears in his eyes. And it was still this just incredibly human moment. You know, it's your heroes are still people. And that's for better or worse, obviously. Can I give you our expansive view on what a Spinal Tap moment is? Yeah. Because that's a great story. But basically, it's things that weren't funny when they happened, but are funny in retrospect. Well, with the Waylon Jennings thing, there was a really tense moment in the recording studio with Waylon where he kept mispronouncing a word and he was doing one of a song that I had written and I was 25 and, um, and he kept mispronouncing the word elixir. <laughs> and finally, like after however many takes, they're like, he's not going to get this, is he? And they all look at me. I'm the youngest person there. I'm like, fuck, I got to go in and sit down with Waylon Jennings. <laughs> and so I, I went in and I sat down cross-legged on the floor. He was sitting in a folding chair. And I looked up at him. I said, Mr. Jennings, this is incredible. You sound so great. But you keep mispronouncing this word elixir. And he said, well, what the hell's an elixir? And I said, it's like an old-timey drug. And he's like, oh, you think I'd know that? Like, I know, exactly. He's like, what am I saying? And I'm like, you keep saying Excelsior, which is a whole other thing. And he goes, all right, all right, I'll get it. So he did it again and said Excelsior. And I, was like, I had to go back in and sit on the floor. And he goes, I did it again, didn't I? And um, I said, yeah. I said, you know what? What if we just forget about the word elixir? What if you just imagine that there's two women who love each other very much, and one of them is named Annie, and you just say, Annie licks her. He looked at me weird, and I thought for a second, oh, no, he's going to like get upset. And he goes, you're sick. I like it. <laughs> and he fucking nailed it on the next take, and it was perfect. But So I have a similar story. I... I'm friends with Peter Buffett, who's Warren Buffett's son. Damn. And like his ex-wife was the manager of my band, Women's Liberace. And <laughs> I was living with Peter in Milwaukee. And this was the night before the 92 election. Bill Clinton was making a whistle stop through Wisconsin. And he comes to the mansion to film his last commercial. And at that time, he's like talking like this. He can't even talk. And he goes on camera to film the commercial. And he's perfect. You know, he's crystal clear but right afterwards he's back to this so he goes up to everybody at the end of the night to shake their hand and all the press is there and he comes up to me and i said that was a brian piccolo performance sir and so if you don't know brian piccolo was a chicago bear football player he died of cancer there's a movie made about his life called brian's song which is about how brave this guy was so I'm basically saying to Clinton, man, that was really courageous, right? But he's looking at me like he doesn't know what I said or what I meant. And I'm oh, just God. stuck there with him shaking my hand for what feels like an hour, two hours, <laughs> three hours. And just as I'd given up hope that this was going to turn into a cool moment, he says, well, I hope it turns out better than that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he bailed me out. Just like Waylon bailed you out. That's the thing. I mean, that's what you want from your heroes, right? You want them to be generous people that get it. Yeah.
read, I know Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall and his wife, Chrissy Guerrero. She sang on one of your albums and I told her I was talking to you today and she said to say hi. Yeah, she's great. It's funny when you asked me about a Spinal Tap moment, I've gotten to know Dave over the years some, but the first time I met him, I did such a stupid thing where I've never forgotten it. I don't know if you guys are like this, but for my whole life, there's like a handful of things that I've said where I like wake up in the middle of the night and go, I can't believe I said that to Dave Foley. <laughs> and it was the late 90s. We're both on Letterman. It was during a summer break from news radio. And I'm a huge Kids in the Hall fan. Like We referenced Kids in the Hall in the opening line of the single off the most recent old 97s album. And so I asked if I could meet him. We were on the stairwell, I remember, in the Ed Sullivan Theater. And I was nervous. And his hair was dyed blonde. And I said, uh, how come you dyed your hair blonde? He goes, well, I dyed it blonde for a part. And at the time, Dave had always been you know, young and trim. And he had put on a few pounds. God knows I know the feeling, right? Now, <laughs> so thinking that I'm so funny, I said, oh, did you gain that weight for the part two? And oh. I'm like, what? what am I thinking? <laughs> but like Bill Clinton, he smiled a, like a wry smile and he goes, no, that's from having a hit television show. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, he just boy. spiked on nice. me. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. He could have just stormed off. But we've met since then. I shared that memory with him and apologized again. He's like, you probably shouldn't have brought it up again. He <laughs> did. <laughs> It feels like Rolling Stone has kind of a love affair with you. I was pleasantly surprised with just how many headlines feature you and the old 97s over a number of years, up to the present, really. It's like, see Rhett Miller spar with God in raucous Jesus Loves You performance. Oh. Uh, another one, year in review. So how was your 2020, Rhett Miller? <laughs> another one is old 97 singer Rhett Miller damages voice, resorts to Twitter. Oh, no. <laughs> Rhett Miller interprets David Bowie's Queen Bitch. <laughs> so is that, in fact, the case? Is there a special relationship there? Man, I'm friends with some of the folks at Rolling Stone over the years, but they're not even the folks that make the decisions to throw my name into those headlines. And God knows I'm grateful for any stuff like that that I get. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. Like, I remember the first Old 97's Electra record, our first review in Rolling Stone. And that is such a watermark moment for a band when you finally can open. Because back then, of course, it was very physical copy oriented. You open up Rolling Stone and there it is on page like 72. It's a little, your <laughs> tiny little album cover square and then the number of stars. And I think we got three, three and a half stars because it's always three and a half stars. They could say it's the greatest album of all time and it's three and a half stars. Like, well, then what's five? <laughs> but um, the review itself was so tepid. This is me never giving up a grudge. This is like 25 years later. I totally understand. I totally understand. <laughs> Grant was one of the early editors of No Depression, and he basically said, it's too loud to be country, and it's too country to be punk, and what are we supposed to make of this? You know, basically saying, I wish they had done it differently. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Why don't you go make a freaking record then, Grant? It was so disappointing. So <laughs> Right. It is one of those, like, what, what have you ever done? All, all the love they've given me, and all I can think about is 25-year-old album review. It was lukewarm. Yeah. <laughs> My first music business gig out of college was working for Cheap Tricks Manager nice. in Madison, Wisconsin. And he was a old-school 70s manager, right? He drove a Ferrari, 
the office had gold records on all the walls. But I remember I was in the office the day that the Rolling Stone review for their album Busted came out. You know, and that was the first record after they'd had the big hit with the flame and all that stuff. And he might have even sent me out to the the university bookstore to buy it and bring it in and page through it, open it up, one and a half stars. Mm. And I just remember kind of the air going out of the room and he kind of looks at it and shrugs. It's like, well, what are you going to do? And then he walked in the office, closed the door, and about a half hour later, I heard him yelling at the publicist from the record company, how can this happen? Ah! That's a killer. I did a podcast recently called Cheap Tracks, where you talk about a cheap trick song for an hour and a half. And they brought up that, because of course, that's kind of a low moment in one of the greatest all-time rock and roll bands. But yeah, he was talking about Rick Nielsen. It might have been the guy that wrote that review for Rolling Stone, somebody that had poorly reviewed that album in a major publication. And Rick, you know, called him up and said, you're taking food out of my kid's mouth, you son of a bitch. (laughs) Cheap Trick is such a cautionary tale, though, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, in the 80s, Epic forced them to use outside songwriters. I mean, can you imagine Rick Nielsen is one of the greatest of all time and he and the band have to record The Flame, which becomes a huge hit, but it sucks and it's so uncheap trick. And I know that in the 90s, he was working with our old engineer, Doug McBride at Gravity Studios on putting out Live at Budokan 2. Which is great. Yeah, it's great. But he was telling us that Rick seemed to have lost a lot of his confidence. I mean, he was asking Doug, why aren't we bigger than we are? And I don't think he probably feels that way anymore because I think in the interim three decades, so many bands have come out to name them as one of their influences and one of their favorites, you know, big bands do. Um, But, you know, it really goes to show you if Rick Nielsen can lose confidence, what does that mean for the rest of us? Right. I know. I know. And he's so good. He's so good. They never got to get rich, right? Like they were coming up with Kiss and playing shows with Kiss. Everybody that was obsessed with them went and started a band. But it was one of those things where, you know, um, Rick's son, Miles, I don't think this is anything he hasn't said publicly. He grew up and they had old cars. They didn't live in a mansion. Like it was people thought because his dad was Rick Nielsen that they were huge billionaire rock stars. But it was it's probably like it is with my kids. You know, we just live in a house and make car payments and hope to keep being able to pay the mortgage and the kids go to public school. And I don't know. It's middle class rock and roll. It doesn't happen as much, but um, I feel pretty grateful. People think fame and fortune. No, it's fame and maybe fortune, right? (laughs) Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or a band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more, as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. 
Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast We're from Milwaukee. I actually lived in Chicago for like a decade. And the alt-country scene has always fascinated me because it's a Chicago phenomenon. It's not a Southern phenomenon. Yeah. You know, we had Uncle Tupelo, and then it becomes Wilco and Sunvolt. And then you had Robbie Falks and John Langford, and you had the Mekons. And then the Mekons did the Waco Brothers, right? And so it's all kind of comes from there. How do you think you guys fit into that whole scene? We owe our career to Chicago as well. I was on tour with a band called Kill Billy that was like a bluegrass punk band. That band was friends with the folks that would go on to start Bloodshot. I went through just playing rhythm guitar. I never appeared on an album, but I was a touring rhythm guitarist for that band. I think they wanted somebody young. It was so fun. and It was a total learning experience. And I met a bunch of really nice folks in Chicago and brought in the old 97's first recordings. I remember driving all night long to go open for Robbie Folk's I think it was a bill with Robbie and, the, and then the Blasters. And we played first and it was Double Door. And it was one of those nights where, for whatever reason, the room was jammed and we killed it. And that was it. And Chicago decided that they loved us. And then we went home to Dallas and we were like, why do you motherfuckers not show up at our gigs? Because <laughs> Chicago loves us and Chicago's way cooler <laughs> than Dallas. And they're like, oh, we actually love you now too. And so we started doing well at home because we had done well in Chicago. So yeah, even though we're not from Chicago, I definitely feel like we owe a giant debt of gratitude to Chicago. Was that before or after your big South by Southwest show in 95 when you guys obviously were loved and sparked a bidding war. That Chicago thing was 94. And then that whole year, 94 into 95, we would blast out in our old, you know, Dodge van and just tour as much as we could. A lot of it was St. Louis, Chicago home. But then we did West Coast. We did um, the Northeast a little bit. And then it wound up culminating in that South by, and then the, the, God, the six months after that South by Southwest where we had like 15 major labels spending tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars to try and get us an alt country band to sign to them. And it was great. I mean, it was heady stuff for sure. And we wound up at a label, which really wound up being good for us because without us kowtowing to radio or changing our name, which they wanted, I mean, at the beginning, they're like, what about the new 97s? <laughs> <laughs> the originals. Uh, no, the, the new, new original 97s. Yeah. <laughs> but they kept us on for three records and then a solo record for me. And say what you will about the major label system. We did milk it for a long time. We got pretty lucky, and I think we made some good choices about who we worked with, and we chose our fights. And a lot of times we would just go with the flow. They promised three videos an album. We didn't get any videos, but we didn't make too big of a stink about it. We got to keep making albums, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
Okay, now let's uh, let's talk about the Bizarro World example of that. My band, The Falling Willendas, were signed to a three-record deal with an indie, and in the middle of recording our second record at Smart Studios, you know, Butch Vig's place, our label was having financial problems. And when we finished the record, they ended up only pressing a thousand copies. So I just said, you know, you guys can't afford to put out a third album, so let's just part ways. So we verbally agreed to that, and I proceeded to put money into producing our third record, which was called Patty Cake, and we immediately got major label interest, which was going to culminate in a showcase show at South by Southwest. So we're really excited. Yeah. We're driving down to Austin, but on the way, we find out that our label got wind of it and that we might get signed, and they decided to say, hey, that third record is part of our deal, Uh. even though they agreed to let us go. So we got lawyers involved, and it turned into a shit show, and the majors found out about this before we played, and nobody showed up to see us. Got back in our cars, drove back to Illinois, depressed, and we broke up within months. <sighs> Sorry about that. Thank oh. you. <laughs> wah, wah. We've heard some funny stories about the bidding war situation, and Nicole Atkins, who you also know. She was telling us that she was actually getting the first good meals she'd had in a long time because of the record company taking her out to dinner and stuff like that. Was there one crazy experience that sticks out in your mind? God, there was this one trip where Capitol Records had flown us out. And the first guy we met with was the head of radio at the time. It was a really famous radio guy. And um, they had paid a lot of money to have us there and put us up in the Roosevelt, which was the Rock and Roll Hotel. And we went in for the meeting and the guy, he wouldn't look at us. He kept looking over our shoulder at Sports Center on the TV. And he goes, listen, I could sit here and blow you and tell you that I like your music. But, you know, they wanted me to take this meeting and whatever. I think it's fine. If anything, you guys are probably going to be like a AAA kind of band, if, if anything. But I don't really see there being a lot of legs in this, you know. So whatever. And I was like, whoa, you guys brought it. This is a dog and pony show where you're trying to like woo us. And he's like, yeah, that's just not really who I am. And I said, well, what about college radio as an avenue to break our band? Because at the time, that was very much a thing. I said, what about like the REM model? And he goes, you think you know REM? I worked REM. You don't know anything about REM. You are not REM. And I was like, well, I agree with you on that. But still, come on. Can't you at least kiss our ass a little bit? And then they took us up to the top floor to Gary Gersh's office. And um, I don't think I'm burning any bridges here because I don't think Gersh is like banging down my door. (laughs) And his assistant brought us in to his office and there was a little circle of chairs. But Gary was at his desk with his back to us on the phone and he didn't turn around or wave or like, give me one minute, none of that. Uh, He just kept his back to us and the assistant gestures at the chairs. And Murray goes to sit down at one of the chairs and the assistant goes, that's Mr. Gersh's chair. I'm like, oh, God, okay. The whole meeting was like, he never once, whatever, this is just all so nitpicky. He just kept showing us music videos like, you see that? This is the new Massey Star video. I told him that's the single. That's going to be a hit to his credit. It was a hit. See, that's the new Radiohead single. You know what? I told them that's going to be a hit. It was so weird because it was almost as if he was trying to convince us not to sign (laughs) to his record label. Whereas in the meantime, Electra Records, who we wound up signing with, 
snuck in and hired a bunch of limousines to come to the hotel that Capitol had put us up at. And then they were like, hey, guys, come down to the front. And they drove us to Dodger Stadium and they took us down onto the field for batting practice. And then the head of West Coast Electra looked at me and he goes, you're off book on the national anthem, right? And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's a hard song. That's a hard bro. song. He's like, I know. He's like, just kidding, just kidding. And then they, they did the crazy like level of opulence of the night they showed us in secret while we were there on Capitol's dime. Yeah, we went with Electra. So did you end up singing the Star Spangled Banner? Because that's like the patriotic dream on. It's so hard to sing, right? It's like uh, only a few people so can sing hard. it. Yeah, yeah. It I used to sing it for the Lakers all the time until there was one time. Like I'd done it for Wait, are you, like are you serious? Years. You actually, at the Staples Center, you sang it for the Lakers game? I sang it at the Forum and oh at the Staples Center. Oh my God, the Forum. Wow. Yeah, both of them. The Forum was better because before the anthem, you would go back into the freaking band locker room and smoke weed because of course you know and they're like that's the room for sean Penn and jack nicholson that's where they go do whatever they do in between <laughs> quarters uh but yeah i used to sing it for them a lot and every time i would finish because you're right next to the team kobe would look over me and go cool and i'm like oh kobe just called oh, me cool that's really neat but there was one time in like oh five this is back i used to smoke a lot of weed and i had a two-hour rule like i'm not going to smoke weed two hours before a gig which is fine for a gig but for the anthem i cut it a little close on the two-hour rule went to the thing and i'm standing in front of seventeen thousand people at the staple center it was a thursday night game i think and it was just like one of those intense moments and i look over and adam levine is like right there giving me the who are you bro <laughs> And so I hit that moment that always screws people up. It's the end of one verse section. It's the same as the end as the second. And if you say the words for the second, you are completely gone. And I started to say the wrong lyrics, caught myself, but not without like a big hiccup of, <gasps> and then I punk rocked the finale. <laughs> And I didn't completely melt down. Like I didn't make Sports Center, for instance. But <laughs> it was to the point where as I was leaving the court, first of all, Kobe did not say cool. And then as I was leaving the court, people were like, Good save, bro. <laughs> <laughs> they noticed. After, yeah, after that I was like, you know what? Courtside seats are not worth the pressure of that. Oh, oh, oh but that, you got courtside seats. Every time you sing the anthem for the Lakers, you're wow. courtside. It was great. That's pretty fun. Alan, That's you ought to get on that cool. list. <laughs> I know. Speaking of Dream On, I remember I went with a younger friend to live karaoke and I thought, okay, I'm going to blow these guys away. I'm going to sing Dream On. Oh, and I'm like, oh, that's right. The end goes up like 15, oct 15 <laughs> octaves. And I blew it. It was so embarrassing. And then, so I started like twirling the mic like Roger Dolphy <laughs> as, as a diversion. Rhett, a lot of your songs are about failed relationships, and it got me to thinking about albums that I love that cover the same terrain. 
I think the quintessential example is Fleetwood Mac rumors because there were two relationships ending in the band while they're in the studio and they're writing about them in real time, right? But I also think of the great Paul Simon album, Hearts and Bones from like 1986, which is all about him and Carrie Fisher's failed marriage. And I was wondering if you have any albums that you love that are about breakups. Um, God, I remember this as a trope in music from really early on, being aware of Blood on the Tracks, Bob Dylan, or Shoot Out the Lights, Richard and Linda Thompson. And That's a great album. Yeah, these records where you're working through something in public. I think for us, that record is probably Fight Songs. But, you know, for for me, there's there, it tends to be a little more sloppy. Sad songs are more fun when they sound happy. Um, the song that I keep coming back to is that Dylan song, You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. That whole album is so perfect, but that song, when he gets to the final verse and he says, I look for you in old Honolulu, San Francisco, Ashtabula. You're gonna have to leave me now, I know, but I'll see you in the sky above in the tall grass, in the ones I love. You're going to make me lonesome when you go. I'm like, oh, God. Breakups are so hard. And the idea that you have to have them to make great art or whatever is one that's problematic because then artists are either happy and making crummy art or they're miserable and finally doing something worthwhile. Like, that's no way to live. But there is some truth to it, right? When you're stretched so thin that you can't help but be honest, that's when a lot of great art comes out, but it's not sustainable. Maybe artists are like oysters. To make a pearl, something's got to irritate them. Yeah. Back in 2002, you worked on your solo album, Instigator, with one of my favorite producers, John Bryan, who's worked with... Fiona Apple and Amy Mann, et cetera, et cetera. How was that? I mean, he's a pretty idiosyncratic guy. Man, he's so brilliant. And it's funny, he is idiosyncratic in a lot of ways, but he's also like one of us. Like, okay, he's a genius and he can do things that nobody else can do. John will like go and buy pianos and then he'll like have to rent these warehouse spaces to store all the pianos he's bought. And he's got like a hundred pianos. What are you going to do with them? When we made the instigator, he gave me a piano that I've still got in my house. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, thank you. (laughs) But working with him was pretty incredible. It was still, you know, the old budgets and the old ways of doing things. So we spent four months locked out at NRG and it was just so fun, man. Just the list of drummers was incredible. Jim Keltner played on the record. And then just spending the day listening to his stories. But we would spend whole days where John would be trying to find a guitar tone for a solo. And that would be the whole day. (laughs) And now when I'm making records, like in one day, you want to get three songs completed. And back then we're like, finding a guitar tone is the whole day. (laughs) It's a different world. I met John once. I remember I was at Sunset Sound Studios to see Brian Wilson record because basically half of my band left me to become Brian Wilson's band. Wow. So I went to Sunset Sound just to hang out and watch them record, and John Brian was there. And I can't explain this. This is almost like your story with Dave Foley. But he's in there, and he's got like this, um, I don't know, he looked breezy. 
Let me just yeah. say, he looked breezy. And I was introduced by someone. I said, John, this is Alan, Alan, John. And I said, you look like the male Mary Poppins. <laughs> and he was like, okay. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. You're reminding me of a John Bryan Spinal Tap moment where he was in the studio making a record for Kanye, early Kanye. And he called and he goes, hey, man, you want to come by the studio today? I think it was cello. Kanye's out. And I said, oh, man, that sounds cool. He's like, it's super chill. It's fun. You'll be able to hear some of what we're working on. And it's really cool. So like an hour later, I pull up and he's in there with Tom Biller, his engineer. And it's just the two of them. And the lights are really low. And the vibe is really weird. And nobody's talking. And it's not fun at all. And I'm like, well, you know, what's going on? You said this would be fun. And he's like, actually... Kanye's here right now. And I look around and it's the B room and it's small and there's nobody there. And I'm like, okay, where? And they go, well, he's in the vocal booth taking a nap with a lady. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, they're like, yeah, he was out on the street and he saw a girl walk by that he thought was hot. So he said, hey, you want to come in and hear some tracks? And so we played him a song. And now like 10 minutes later, they're in the vocal booth together. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. I'm doing this wrong. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've never stopped laughing about that phrase. He's in the vocal booth taking a nap with a lady. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Rhett, thanks so much for being here with us. We have just loved these stories. Yeah. So much fun. Where can our listeners find out more about you, find out more about the old 97s, your podcast, Wheels Off, all that stuff? So ATO Records is releasing my album, The Misfit, and that's, you know, Googleable. And they're really hoping people buy the record. That's a thing still, especially on vinyl. Boy, I, I had this artist, Ashley Longshore, create the painting for the cover of the album, and her stuff sells for like forty to 400000 a painting. So you could buy, for a way lower price point, a copy of the vinyl, and uh, <laughs> then you own an Ashley Longshore painting, so that's pretty cool. And then Wheels Off comes out every week. My second kid's book just came out on Little Brown Young Readers, and that is called The Baby Changing Station. And that's kind of a fun book because it's got some rock and roll references in it. The conceit of the book is there's an older brother. When his younger brother arrives, his baby, he's jealous of him because he gets all the attention. And he gets sent to the baby changing station in the pizza place to go change the brother's diaper for the first time. And the baby changing station is magical and offers him the opportunity to trade his little brother in for gifts, basically. His spy goggles or a pair of electric guitars is one of them. And so he starts imagining what he could do with them, but he thinks how much cooler it would be if he and his brother both played in a band together. And so there's a part of the book where it lists off the great bands that are composed of brothers, the Beatles, Oasis, the Kinks. He does say Sly and the Family Stone, which I'm not sure was an actual family band. So there's a little rock and roll even in my kid's book. The Davies hated each other, though. You, you bring that I, in there? I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, we sort of glossed that over in the kindergarten-level reading <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, good, good idea. All right. Thank you, Rat. This has been great. I could talk to you guys all night. This is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, ditto. Ditto, ditto. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this TMEP show, Blast from the Past. Check out our other episodes with members of Heart. Garbage, Soul Asylum, Slater Kinney, Drive-By Truckers, Old Crow Medicine Show, even comedian David Cross, artist Shepard Ferry, and many, many others. You can find our entire catalog on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Alex Hoffman. And I'm Alan Keller. 
thanks for joining us on Too Much Effing Perspective. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here... We don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Evergreen Podcast Network.